please stay tuned to the end of this program or see the show notes for important information regarding today's speakers and the content of this podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Allergy Talk, a round of the latest in the field of allergy and immunology by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For today's episode, we will be reviewing three articles from the July-August 2022 issue of Allergy Watch, a bi-monthly publication which provides research summaries to college members from the major journals in allergy and immunology. And you can also earn CME credit by listening to this podcast. For information about CME credit or to read archived issues of Allergy Watch, head over to college.acaai/publications/allergywatch. And also make sure you check out the ACAAI community on Doc Matter, where we can continue the discussion about these articles. Well, hello everyone again. This is Jerry Lee. I'm an associate professor at Emory University and associate editor of Algae Watch. And today I'm once again joined by the editor-in-chief of Algae Watch, Dr. Stan Feynman. Hello, everybody. Uh, it's good to be here. And I'm also in uh, private practice here in Atlanta, Atlanta Allergy and Asthma, and on the clinical faculty at Emory. And for our third chair today, we are joined by another Algae Watch assistant editor, Dr. Vivian Hernandez-Trujillo. Viv, welcome back to Algae Talk. Why don't you tell the audience a little about yourself, and then we can get started. It's great to be back, Jerry. And I'm Viv Hernandez Trujillo. I am the Fellowship Training Program Director and Division Director at Nicholas Children's and Clinical Professor at the Herbert Wertheim School of Medicine here in Miami. Okay, well, we got three interesting articles today. Viv, I would love you to go first. I think we are really interested in disparities, some of the differences in different ethnic groups. And so I think we have two back-to-back papers that's looking at that effect in atopic dermatitis. So I think you're going to present the first one. I am. So this is one of the articles actually that I reviewed in Allergy Watch. And it's a review of basically looking at race and atopic dermatitis. So vitamin D we know is important for the function of keratinocytes. And two recent meta-analysis actually showed they're significantly different in the serum 25-hydroxy vitamin D levels between pediatric patients with atopic germ versus healthy controls. And Black Americans have lower circulating vitamin D than non-Black Americans. And Black children also have higher rates of most allergic disorders compared to white children. And this study investigated interactions between vitamin D and skin barrier-related factors, which included like filagrin, transepidermal water loss, and SCORED scores. And then also looked at whether allergic sensitization in early childhood was a risk factor. The participants here were from a prospective early life cohort of children with atopic germ that are followed with yearly visits. The mechanisms of progress of atopic germ to asthma in children, longitudinal cohort, and the children were ages zero to two diagnosed with atopic germ. And then they really used a subset here of patients who had serum 25-hydroxy-D measurements and quantitative PCR from skin filagrin expression at the first visit. And then the diagnosis of atopic germ was either made clinically or a parental positive response to three questions from the childhood eczema questionnaire. SCORAD was used to evaluate severity, and then transepidermal water loss was measured on normal skin. And then the patients were also skin tested to 11 aeroallergens and 13 foods. So 323 of the participants, the subset, with available vitamin D and filagrin levels were included, 197 were black and 126 were non-black. 
one of the interesting things that they found was that black children were more likely to have visits in the summer as opposed to non-black children who are more likely to have visits in the winter. And then serum 25 hydroxy levels were lower in the black children, although the vitamin D supplementation was more common among non-blacks. They also found that the median non-lesional transepidermal water loss was significantly lower in blacks, so overall better barrier function was suggested versus non-black patients, but the mean filagrin expression was higher. And then interestingly, the percentage of participants sensitized to any allergen was significantly lower in black patients as compared to non-black patients. Then looking at it a little different, as in non-black participants, black participants that were sensitized to any allergen, food, or had aeroallergen sensitization did have significantly higher score add values compared to those who were not sensitized. So that was another important thing that was reported. And there was no correlation found between the total sensitization load and the skin filaggrin expression in Black participants, regardless of their vitamin D levels. Other studies from this particular cohort have reported that Black children were more likely than than non-Black children to develop asthma without the preceding atopic derm, and that Black and non-Black children with atopic derm had different allergic trajectories. They did also reveal a protective effect of sufficient vitamin D levels on allergen sensitization in non-Black children when the filaggrin levels in the skin were taken into account. And to the author's knowledge, it was the first study revealing interactions between circulating vitamin D and a skin barrier-related marker. And this interaction was race-specific. So I think some of the important things that, that the authors point out and that we really all need to keep in mind, we need to have a better understanding Number one, about are there differences even in the levels of the 25-hydroxy-D cutoffs for for darker skin populations? I can say that it's very important. One of the things I was really happy to talk about this, and I'm excited to to hear about Jerry's review of his article as well. There are differences not only in race, but I believe also in ethnicity. And I think it's important that we as allergists, as clinicians, and as researchers are investigating these differences because without a doubt, it will lead to improvement in the care of our patients. Yeah, I absolutely have done, I think about two or three of these podcasts now. I think one has not come out yet on nasal polyp, but this comes up over and over again. We have populations that are underrepresented in these studies, and therefore we just don't know if the same normal ranges or the same interpretations. And you mentioned 25-hydroxy vitamin D. But I guess the big picture also is, even if it's low, I guess I'm wondering, what do you think is the usefulness of that in atopic dermatitis? I always sort of struggle with that. They've always done these supplementation studies that sort of have mixed results. I would love for to see here, both of you, how do you approach vitamin D in our patients? Is it just the people who are high risk, like on a lot of steroids or... I can guess who are the ones that we really should be worried about. You know, I don't really check vitamin D levels on my patients, even the ones with eczema. And I guess partially is because it's a blood draw and I try to minimize that in my kids. So I may not be doing a very good job at recommending them to supplement, although I'm not sure there's clinical data to say that it's worth it if they're getting a healthy diet. So I don't know. Viv, what about you? What do you do? Yeah, so actually that's a really good question. It's interesting living in South Florida where obviously we have a lot of sun. The majority of children, and I agree with you, Stan, I don't normally order these, but the pediatricians do. The 
even the children who spend a lot of time outside, they're still vitamin D deficient. So mm. I do think it's interesting. And like my population primarily is a Hispanic population. So it's ethnically different. But I think something that would be interesting to look at now, a lot of people have been supplementing since the COVID pandemic started, right? Because they were recommending supplementing with vitamin D. I wonder if there's going to be any impact on that. And going back to your question, Jerry, the reduced sensitization in blacks, I think, you know, and the author said this, it might have to do with factors with the skin barrier other than filaggrin. There's things we just don't know. And maybe there's differences there that could be impacting. Yeah. And so I think this would sort of lead into a lot of the advocacy that the college has done regarding understanding disparities in atopic dermatitis. And so I actually wanted to plug just a large effort the ACI has recently done to really understand the impacts of disparities on atopic dermatitis and people of color on and atopic dermatitis and food allergies. So there's actually a white paper that is about to be published in the annuals where the college surveyed their membership. They did interviews with physicians, advocacy leaders. I mean, they did a roundtable discussion and then we really had multiple stakeholders trying to investigate this. And it was interesting. They had three key findings. Um, the first one is that there's actually not a lot of awareness about physicians and consumers about these disparities of care amongst people of color in atopic dermatitis and food allergy. And in terms of addressing those disparities, I think a lot of people were interviewed really talking about that if they wanted to take the extra time to address differences in perceptions, they just didn't have time to do it. You know, that time you have to take where there may be a lack of trust or a misunderstanding. You know, a lot of allergists are just challenged to have the time to address the particular needs of different populations. And certainly, they did have good evidence that people of color encountered barriers to effective diagnosis, treatment, educational support. I mean, obviously there's different manifestations as you're showing in terms of the manifestations of atopic dermatitis and skin of color. Louis Vonancier recently did a podcast on this channel really highlighting those discussions. And also just the policy in general, we have significant social economic barriers, such as the fact that a lot of populations have food insecurity where they're faced with food allergy, but you have situations where, you know, government assistance like SNAP or so on doesn't cover a lot of the foods that these children need to have a healthy diet despite their food allergy. So there's a lot of interesting things that they found from this white paper. And I think it's really germane to the discussion we're highlighting here. You're right. And it was interesting if you look at some of the comments of some of the participants in the roundtable, particularly I noted that Mike Blaze who was the uh, executive medical director for the college, pointed out that in the underserved community, that telehealth visits may be the best alternative to reach these patients because they might have challenge for transportation or for childcare or having to miss work and things like that. Now, it was also pointed out that there may be a problem with technology, but I think that's a really good consideration. Now, the panelists did have 10 solutions that they recommended that will be published in the paper. And some of them, I think, are really interesting and things that we may even want to point out to folks. The, the first one was, of course, explore ways to enroll more people of color into clinical trials. And we've mentioned this previously, that race and ethnicity definitely is different between groups. And so I think we need to have a more diverse population when clinical trials are done. A uh, second thing was recruit more people of color into medical school. 
particularly into the specialty of allergy. I think that's very important. When you look at the people who responded to the, the study from the college, the, the survey that the college did to their members, there were 200 respondents and 68% were white, 21% were Asian or Pacific Islander, and less than 6% identified as either Latino or Black or African-American. So clearly there's an underrepresentation in those populations in our allergy provider community. Another thing that they pointed out was increased awareness and education among specialists, develop a photo library of atopic dermatitis and people of color because that obviously their lesions are not gonna be the same. And one of the other ones I wanted to highlight was create culturally appropriate patient education materials and partnerships to reach out into communities with color. And we know that from some of our other literature we have that it needs to be, you know, if we're trying to communicate with patients and educate them, we have to make sure we do it on their level and on terms that they understand. Yeah, and thanks, Stan. I'm really happy that the college has really taken the lead on this. I do want to shout out a couple of things that we might have already mentioned that I really encourage our listeners to take advantage of. One is, as I mentioned, in collaboration with the Allergy and Asthma Network, there is actually a website. The website is eczemainskinofcolor.org. And that photo library that you mentioned, Stan, they actually have developed that to specifically show you ways to make the diagnosis and recognize the differences in atopic dermatitis in skin of color. I think I already mentioned earlier on this channel, if you go to an earlier episode, there is Luce Financier's podcast on disparities in atopic dermatitis. And you mentioned diversifying and getting other underrepresented groups in the field of allergy immunology the SPARK program, which we recruit medical students and residents to learn about allergy and choose our career, there was actually a specific recruitment and outreach to historically black colleges and universities for that. And I went to the SPARK meeting for the last annual meeting, and it was wonderful. I think it was a great opportunity. And again, I'm, I think we're going to continue to see those things. So I really want to applaud the college for what's been going on so far. And I think when they start publishing that annual paper, I think at least we could see sort of the spectrum on how we can all address this issue. I completely agree about Spark. That's great to encourage the next generations because that's really how we're going to make an impact. So yes, absolutely. The college has been incredible in offering those grants for young people. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So I actually wanted to talk about a second published article from that same study you were mentioning, Viv. And so again, that's that mechanisms of progression to asthma in children cohort study that was done through the Hershey lab at Cincinnati Children's. So the title of this article is called Longitudinal Atopic Dermatitis Endotypes, an Atopic March Paradigm that Includes Black Children. And the first author is Jocelyn Biagini. So what they looked at in this study is, as Viv mentioned, this is taking one to two-year-old children who are black and white with atopic dermatitis and follow them yearly, longitudinally. Well, if you're doing that, we can actually get some information about the atopic march. And traditionally, we're thinking eczema first and food allergy, rhinitis, and asthma. But there's actually is some heterogeneity in that. And so they really wanted to investigate now that they have these yearly longitudinal visits, is there a different trajectory with different racial groups? And so, again, they have this cohort of 410 Black 
children with eczema, 191 white. They have two visits to report on, the initial visit and then the one year afterwards, where essentially, if you look at the groups, I think the major difference other than race is insurance. So the black population was 93% public insurance and the white population was 31%. And so on that initial visit, in general, food allergy and allergic rhinitis was more common in white participants than black participants with atopic dermatitis, though asthma symptoms were more prevalent in the black participants than white. So actually, the sort of the emphasis on that initial visit was different for what atopic manifestations that they occur. And they really did all sorts of adjustments, public insurance, daycare, cat or dog ownership, secondhand smoke. And really it was still present, that disparity, despite multiple adjustments. Now, when you go to that one year later visit, now they're again, about two to three years of age. Now, both of them have similar rates of atopy, but the black participants have increased asthma risk so again, they had more likely to have asthma symptoms. Obviously, they're too young to be diagnosed with asthma versus the white participants, again, having predominantly food allergy and allergic rhinitis. Though, in terms of allergy testing, they had less sensitization to aeroallergens in food. And as Viv mentioned, Part of that was the fact that they had more intact skin. They have higher flag expression and less water loss, sort of like more resilient skin barrier function. Now, it's a little hard to interpret asthma risk in this study because they use something called the pediatric asthma risk score. And that does include black as a variable. So again, black rates get you two points on that score. So as you can see, it's a little confounded that way. Though, even if you take that away, there was a three-point delta in the PAR score between the black patients and the white patients, and that's really driven by family history. So there's more likely to have parental history of asthma or atopic dermatitis in parents. Last thing, I think it's very important, Cincinnati has sort of an infrastructure that where they can estimate exposure to traffic-related air pollution. This was based on their CCCAP study. And so there was definite higher exposures to secondhand smoke and traffic-related air pollution, like diesel exhaust pollution, in the black participants, and you can imagine, you know, that that increased environmental exposure could be is what's sort of driving their trajectory to be more respiratory, at least like for asthma and wheezing, than other one potentially. So taken together, we really have to recognize that the atopic march is going to be different amongst different populations, and clearly, as we see patients with eczema of different racial types, maybe we should be more attuned to maybe considering more thorough investigations of respiratory triggers and asthma symptoms in Black participants. Obviously, we'll have to see this in other populations. But again, I do think this also highlights just another example of the disparities that we have in our atopic patients, whether it's environmental or not. One of the things I think you said that's very important, Jerry, and that has actually been reported is your environment, not only your indoor environment, but your outdoor environment and like the exposure to pollution or diesel fuel or gases, that really does impact. And depending on if you're living above, below the poverty line where you live, it does make a difference. So I think that's important. And the location of neighborhoods, if they're near highways, that also makes a difference for the same reason. So I completely agree that those are other factors that need to be considered. Yeah, I think this is just another good example that we really need to 
learn more about the different impact of a race and our ethnicity in the development of these diseases like asthma and allergies. And obviously this clearly shows that the atopic march that we refer to all the time is different in different races. So we just need to be aware of it and treat our patients accordingly. Well, at least in this study, we're seeing significant effects on differential pollution exposure. But Stan, it looks like just pollution in general can cause a lot of problems for people of all populations. So why don't you tell us about your pollution study? So yeah, I'm, the study I'm going to talk about has nothing to do with atopic dermatitis. It was published in Clinical Experimental Allergy in October. And basically, it's titled Clinical Impact and Immunologic Alterations in Asthmatic Patients Allergic to Grass Pollen Subjected to High Urban Pollution in Madrid. And these are researchers who are in Spain. They've previously looked at different types of pollen related to air pollution. So previously, they've done studies looking at areas of high air pollution and areas of low air pollution. And they looked at symptoms and things like that. And they found that in the areas of the high air pollution, there were a higher production of endotoxins compared to the pollen that was collected in the areas in lower pollution. But that was previously. So this study, what they did here is they looked at two areas of Spain. Madrid, of course, which is an area of higher pollution. It's a large city. It has over 6 million population. To a smaller city, Siduad Real, which is only 75,000 population. And they looked at patients from each of those areas. And they looked at them over two pollen seasons. And they looked at the average combined symptom and medication use. These were all patients who had asthma. And they found that for the patients in Madrid, compared to those in Ciudad Real, there was a 28.9% difference in symptoms. In other words, the ones in Madrid had 28.9% higher symptom severity and medication use compared to the area Ciudad Real, which had a lower, the smaller city, you know, more rural city, 75,000 people. They also found that the nitrogen dioxide level was three times higher in Madrid versus in Ciudad Real, and that the levels of other air pollutions though were similar, which is kind of interesting because you'd expect sometime there'd be a little more discrepancy. The interesting thing that these researchers did that other people haven't done is do immunologic studies on the patients. So they looked at various, you know, in vitro stimulation with pollen from both cities on lymphocytes and dendritic cells. And what they found was that the exposure from the pollen in Madrid led to enhanced proliferation of CD8 positive and also NK cells, which as we know, stimulate the Th2 response. So the grass pollen allergic patients, and they were looking at ryegrass, which is a big grass there in Spain, they shown that the, obviously they had increased symptoms and medication use compared to the area, patients who were from the less polluted area. And the differences the authors felt may be related to an increased activation of the CD8 positive and the NK cells by the pollen from the more polluted areas. So they felt it is appropriate to alert patients, not only of risk levels from grass pollen, just the levels, but also atmospheric pollutants. So we know that in general, warming trends have caused our seasons to be longer. We know that the pollen counts are higher than they've been in the last 20 years. So pollen-related factors obviously enhance the allergic response, but these researchers suggest that 
other things such as pollutants contribute to this as well and maybe even make the allergen more potent immunologically. So basically, I think it's an important thing to remember that warming trends are significant. And the fact is that our patients are impacted. And I'm a pollen guy. We do pollen counts at our practice. And we've looked at the effect of pollen and the impact of climate changes with pollen. So these types of studies always pique my interest. And this status when you talk about your electric car, right? Oh, I, I didn't bring that up. I, okay, some people say I'm a tree hugger because we do have an electric car, but I'm trying to do what I can do to try to reduce my carbon footprint. That's a political statement. Sorry, I shouldn't be telling that here. No, no. I mean, obviously, there's this double whammy here, right? We have a double whammy with potential climate change with pollution. And then, of course, the actual direct inflammatory adjuvant effects of it. I mean, why wouldn't you want to do everything you can to stem the tide here? I think it's also interesting, Jerry, like, again, the interplay between allergy and immunology, right? And how Mm. our immune cells are really more important than we think. And that, from what I know, that really has not been studied a lot. I will tell you, I was very interested in this study, Stan. I was born 200 miles north of Madrid, and I had very severe asthma as a young child. And when I go back, interestingly enough, the olive pollen makes me, I do not have problems otherwise, but when I go back, I do have, I start with cough and wheezing. So it's interesting. And the fact that our immune system, and I really think that's something that would be super interesting to study further. Absolutely. Well, I guess that's not native of the United States. Is there a lot of olive here? There are not. Okay. You're safe here. Goodness. Okay. Obviously (laughs) Miami is a great place to live. So Again, I think those are our articles today. That was a really great discussion. If you really like what you hear, please rate our podcast on iTunes. It really helps us. And I'm absolutely interested in your feedback, corrections, or suggestions. If you want to email us directly, just go to our address at allergytalkoneword at acaai.org. And that is the end of our podcast. Have a wonderful day, everybody. The ACAI is presenting this podcast for educational purposes only. It is not medical advice or intended to replace the judgment of a licensed physician. The college is not responsible for any claims related to the procedures, professionals, products, or methods discussed in the podcast, and it does not approve or endorse any products, professional services, or methods that may be referenced. Today's speakers have the following disclosures. Dr. Lee has nothing to disclose. Dr. Hernanda Trujillo has been a speaker for Takeda and CSL. He's been on advisory board for Takeda, Regeneron, and Sanofi, and has been a consultant for Kaleo Farming, Enzovit, National Peanut Board, and the Algae and Asthma Network. Dr. Feynman has been a speaker for Takeda and has done research with AI Immune, DBV, and BioChrist.